Turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So, man, it looks good. Hopefully everybody's found a seat and you guys are all looking real sharp today. Excellent. Uh, we've got, we want to just make sure we welcome and thank all of you who are guests here. Some of you have come from some distance. Some of you actually flew here to be with family, and we're especially glad to have each and every one of you. I noticed very early on with our growing family that the more kids you have, the more difficult it is to travel by airplane. And some of you have had this reality. Um, years ago, Karen and I were flying from Portland, Oregon to go to Florida. Uh, we had our two kids age three and one, and then Christiana was on the way. Karina's about seven months pregnant. We were going to Florida for my brother's graduation, and we uh, ran into some really bad weather. So bad that they were supposed to connect in St. Louis. They had us fly all around St. Louis and come in uh, from the east. And when we finally got there, there was only just a few minutes between our flight that was going to be leaving from St. Louis. And that put us in a situation like, man, we are going to make it. (laughs) You know, if you have a lot of kids, you don't want to spend extra hours in an airport. I'm like, we're going to make this, so please radio. And so you know how it is when you've got kids, so you get both car seats, right, and all of the carry-on, and and we had a double stroller and get the kids strapped in. And so I'm running in front of Karina, who's seven months pregnant. I'm like the fullback for the ball carrier, right? And we are going through the St. Louis airport. And you know how they have those, like, moving, like, gliding ramps that you can go on to save time? And so I'm, I hit it, and uh, next thing you know, I hear Karina go, Chris! And I'm like, oh, I turn around, and our uh, double stroller didn't make a clean entrance, and one of the wheels is bent in. So I go back with all my stuff, unload it, and I'm down there on my hands and knees looking to see how much farther I got, using all the strength I've got to bend that wheel back in. I'm sure we were a sight to behold. Okay? And so we did the best we could to get on there. And you finally get to the plane. They've been holding the plane for us. You know how you feel the love when they hold the plane for you? I am sweating like a marathon runner. I've got all these car seats and all the carry-ons. And we are coming on with our kids, you know. And everybody's like, no, do not be sitting next to us. And we finally get where we're supposed to be. And as is standard, they always, you know, kind of run through these routines about, like, in the event of danger or we encounter turbulence or trouble, these are all the safety precautions. We have to make an emergency landing. Uh, but the airlines have noticed that no one pays attention to those warnings, okay? I mean, they try to do songs. They do have cheerleaders out there. No one pays attention. So what they've done, they're moving to put everything down on these little drop-down monitors because if it's on TV, it's important. And, and now everybody's like, you know, they're watching these things. Before they had people doing everything. No, nah, that didn't matter. But now that it's on TV, people are watching. However, you know, most people, they just bypass it. They're, they're thinking about, like, their broken stroller, where they're going, what they're going to eat. No one is paying attention to the event that danger should occur. That's true not only at the airline industry, but it's especially true when it comes to God's message to the world, which is the word of the cross. It's as if it just absolutely doesn't matter. We have more important things to think about. And, you know, here we are at Easter. The day that Christians celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. And it just so happens that it is April Fool's Day. And a lot of people think, like, isn't that ironic? (laughs) Jesus rising from the grave, April Fool's. Is it? Foolish to believe in Jesus and the resurrection. Well, 
for a lot of people, it sure seems to be foolish. It is foolish if you are perishing. Take a look at the verse we're going to look at this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. It says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross, it refers to the gospel. The word gospel means the good news. It is the good news about all that God has done, is doing, and will do through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the word of the cross. And the cross was an actual uh, instrument of execution in the Roman Empire. Now today, we see cross and we treat it like jewelry, right? And we have decorative crosses and some of you may be wearing a cross. But I want you to know that it was actually an instrument of torture and of execution. In Roman times, you didn't in public conversations even refer to the crucifixion because it was so horrendous. And Rome executed a lot of people. Now, if you're a Roman citizen, you were spared the pain and the agony of actually dying on a cross if you had committed some sort of crime. But everybody else, you weren't a Roman citizen, you're a foreigner, you committed some sort of crime, Rome would execute you. And they had perfected uh, crucifixion to keep a person alive up to about three days. And it was, it was just agony. And it was abasement. And what would happen is you'd eventually die of suffocation or just sheer exhaustion. And Rome would put all these people being crucified and they'd put them in very public places as if to serve as a warning. Don't break our laws and don't mess with our armies. And so when you think about the word of the cross, oftentimes people think about Jesus and dying on a cross. And, you know, it was actually prophesied that that would happen. Psalm 22, written a thousand years before the event, prophesied that there would be one who would actually die on a cross. There is, in Isaiah 53, there's going to be one who is pierced through for our transgressions. This Messiah, God keeps focusing all of history on someone who comes from the family of David, who will be an eternal king, and it will be this Messiah, this anointed one, who will literally pay the penalty for sin. And so all of humanity is focused on this event. And so when Jesus comes, he does actually die on a cross. And it is agonizing. Even before that, he is scourged, which was kind of the normal Roman process. But despite how horrific it was physically, Jesus' cross is absolutely unique. Because it's not that he just went through agony. He, at the time when he is on the cross, he literally pays the penalty for the sin of humanity. This is what made it so agonizing. And so like you find Peter writing about it in 1 Peter chapter 2, 24, it says, He himself bore our sins on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. See, a lot of people just like, well, Jesus suffered on the cross, but they don't exactly understand why. It's because what God did, he's the God of justice, and he poured out all of his wrath against every sin, every violation of his holiness, every disregard of him. He actually poured it all out on Christ who would pay the penalty for sin, for the wages of sin is death. Someone needs to die. And so God says, I will send my son. I will promise to send him and I will deliver and he will die in the place of sinners. 
It's like it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our, on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So when you think of the cross, as horrendous as the physical suffering, far greater was the agonizing of Jesus paying the penalty for sin. So great was this event that God caused a darkness from 12 to about 3 p.m. to cover the land because no human could see what it would look like when the Savior of the world would die and pay the penalty for sins on the cross. It is the word of the cross. And at 3 p.m., Jesus utters this final statement. It is finished. The work that I was sent to do to pay the penalty for sin, I have accomplishment, accomplished it. Now, what we see, the cross, it looks as if the ultimate torture. And it is. But the cross of Christ also is God's ultimate triumph. It is his declaration that I have paid the penalty for sin, and all you have to do is look at Jesus. I mean, when you look at the cross, you see God's love, mercy, justice, grace, all fixed in one point. And it literally changes everything when you realize that God has actually addressed our sin issue. But it would be really sad if Jesus just died. The reality is that this one who was promised to be the payment for sin rose again three days later. He was buried. He was put in a tomb. But death could not hold him. He actually rises from the grave. And do you know that he appears to not only those women who came to the tomb, but his disciples and hundreds of other people to authenticate to the world that I am God, that sin has been paid for, and if you really want relationship with God, I can do it. I have secured the way, for I am the way. It's like this. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so the reason that we celebrate at Easter it's because the resurrection tells us Jesus is absolutely God. His victory over death and sin has been accomplished. The promises of Scripture are fulfilled, and the power and possibility of a relationship with God has been secured. It is the word of the cross, and I want you to know that it is the dividing line of humanity. It's like the continental divide. You're familiar with the continental divide? It's this line that cuts all the way through our continent and goes on these mountains here. And on one side of the Continental Divide, all the water runs to the Pacific. And for the rest, it all eventually runs into the Atlantic. It's called the Continental Divide. Water literally goes here to the Pacific, here to the Atlantic. When you come to Jesus and the word of the cross, it is the eternal divide. There really are only two options in this life. You're either here today as someone who is presently rejecting Christ, the resurrection, the word of the cross, or you are personally receiving Jesus and the resurrection and the word of the cross. But notice what the text says. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
It's foolish. The Greek word is moria. That's where we get our word moron or moronic. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely foolishness to believe that God is going to send a son. He's going to, like, die on some cross, on some nondescript hill, in some kind of worthless part of the Roman Empire. And somehow that his death and his supposed resurrection is going to be the dividing line that changes people's eternity, whether or not you believe in him. I want you to know there's a lot of people that go, that is ridiculous. I reject it. And really, the reason people do that is because it doesn't allow for anything about human attainment or human pride or ingenuity. People like to kind of work their own way. They want to have God on their terms. But the word of the cross doesn't give you that option. And they're like, I will not have it. And really, rejection of Christ and the word of the cross, it actually takes a variety of flavors. It comes in all different shapes and forms. Let me give you three. Some people who are presently rejecting, they are absolutely opposed to this idea. It's the idea that's kind of the outright, hostile, shake-your-fist-at-God approach. And maybe you, you're here. Like, somehow you got roped into coming here, and you're like, man. <laughs> but truth be told, I think that is absolutely ridiculous, and I reject it. I, I am opposed to this. And there are some folks that are very famous in their opposition toward God and Jesus and the resurrection. For instance, the late atheist Christopher Hitchens, he wrote the book, God is Not Great. Or Richard Dawkins, the Oxford professor who wrote The God Delusion. Kind of the title tells it all. You believe in God? You're delusional. Or the uh, Princeton professor of bioethics, Peter Singer, he always kind of keeps popping up in the news. He's vehemently opposed to the idea of Jesus and the resurrection. He thinks that's crazy. He also generally makes the news because he cheerfully uh, advocates for infanticide and euthanasia. He believes, like, you should be able to kill a baby inside the womb even 28 days after they've been born. It's his position. He's opposed to God and anything God might stand for, including life. He's like, I will not have it. The opposition to the word of the cross can even be seen in art. There was a guy by the name of Andres Serrano. In 1987, he took a very famous photograph. And in this photograph, he took a crucifix, a cross, or a little image of Jesus dying on it. And he put it in a glass, and he filled that glass with his own urine and took pictures of it. And that particular piece of art, that picture, won the awards in the visual arts at the Southeastern Center for Contemporary Art. The National Endowment of the Arts, your tax money, in part paid for the $15,000 he received as an award for that picture. All of it is to say it is worthless. I remember years ago when I was at the University of Oregon, there were students that were showing a movie about the life of Jesus. And they were doing it in the student union, and if you wanted to stop and watch, you could, and and, and it gets to the time of the beating of Jesus, or he's scourged and they're crucifying, and there's quite a few students that would gather around, and it's sobering to actually think that, wow, this actually happened. But what was so shocking is that there were some students that were actually cheering for the Romans as they're beating Jesus and as he's dying. And the people were just like looking at him. Why? Because they're opposed. They think it's ridiculous. You know, if you look at all the world's religions, we want to, let's just kind of like, well, it, there can be lots of ways 
to get to heaven, all right? But Jesus makes exclusive claim. He says, I'm the only way. And a lot of folks are like, no, I will not have that. You can say you're a way, but don't say you're the way. And so they're opposed. There are some people that are just presently rejecting because they're complacent. They kind of have the attitude like, you know what, I'm not interested. I could care less. I'm indifferent. It's kind of like this. You know, I've got far more important things to think about, like my job and my golf game and what I'm going to eat today and, and what's on TV and who's going to win the basketball game. And, and, there, and so it's just like, you know, I really could care less. And the idea is that, hey, if, if I want a God, I'll have God on my terms. He'll be what I like, and I'll pick and choose. So that's my choice. Don't be telling me about, like, you need to believe in Jesus and the resurrection. I'm not interested. There are folks that are presently rejecting because they are complacent. But let me give you a third category of folks that are presently rejecting. And these are those who are just tolerant. They're friendly to the idea, but they are foreign to the application. They actually, they know about Jesus. They know about the resurrection. They can tell you things about the gospel. They can even read their Bible. It's interesting. Uh, you could ask people like, hey, do you believe in Christ and the resurrection? And they'll tell you like what church they go to or um, what denomination they affiliate with. They don't really want to be pinned down. They're like, hey, I, I see there's some benefit in, uh, in knowing these things, but I don't necessarily really believe them. You know, this is pretty prevalent. We call it inoculation. They have just enough to to know, but they really don't believe. Whatever stripe you might be, whether you're absolutely opposed diametrically, you are just complacent, or you're tolerant, you need to understand that if you are rejecting Jesus and the word of the cross, you are perishing. Every single person is a person of faith. If you're an atheist, you're putting your faith that there is no God. If, you're, if you've made up your own religion, you're putting your faith in that. Your faith is only good as the object in which it is placed. But I need you to know something with certainty. That if your faith isn't in Jesus and the word of the cross, like the text says, it says you are perishing. Did you see that? For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's the word that speaks of complete and utter destruction and loss. It's kind of like this. You are flying into total disaster, but you will not believe. You don't think it really matters. You're trying to avoid it. You're like, well, there's got to be a reason. Like, this can't be true. And you need to understand you are going to face utter destruction because you foolishly have dismissed this word of the cross. It's kind of like you're that guy, Harry Truman, back in 1980. Remember, not Harry Truman, the president, but in 1980 in the state of Washington, uh, right before Mount St. Helens blew, there was this guy named Harry Truman, and he lived by Mount St. Helens. In fact, he had spent most of his life living there. In fact, there is a picture of him. And everybody knew, the geologists were telling us, this mountain is about to blow. And so they were getting everybody that lived around there and had them evacuated. They actually established what they called the safe zone. They put it around the mountain. And of course, Mr. Truman was not living in the safe zone. Despite whoever came to plead with him to move, they're like, nah, <laughs> I'm not going to have it. In fact, he became rather famous for his just bold rejection of the whole idea. Like, that, nah, not going anywhere. 
And then it happened. May 19th, 1980, 8.32 a.m. There was a magnitude 5 earthquake. The side of Mount St. Helens is the largest uh, recorded uh, fall of just earth, and it literally just crumbles away. And then came this lateral blast from the volcano, and it destroyed everything with a 150,000 square foot mile. There was no living thing that existed. No trees. It just destroyed everything. And Harry Truman, uh, he was living well within the danger zone. Uh, they identified where they thought his place was, and they estimate there's about 50 meters underneath this, his home and uh, 50 meters of volcanic ash. It looked like a lunar landscape. Do you know 57 people died from that volcano blast? Most of them were in the safe zone. It was far worse than anybody ever imagined. The very next day, in the Longview Daily News, this is what the article was titled. And it said this, Harry Truman lived and likely died by his own rules. You know, that's going to be the story for a lot of people. They lived and they died by their own rules. And friends, it is going to be utterly devastating. They are perishing. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you'll not have Jesus, friends, you're in the camp of foolishly rejected. And you will perish. It's interesting. Jesus spoke more about hell than he did heaven. Why? To warn you. You don't want to go there. I've come so that you can have relationship. I've come to pay the penalty for your sin. I've come so that you don't have to perish. But that choice is yours. Years ago, uh, I was talking with my family. And because I had become a Christian and was kind of an anomaly in my family, that was an interesting topic of conversation. They were not overly favorable of my new found faith in Christ. And so on one particular occasion with some relatives around, uh, we were sitting around, and one of them, in the midst of our discussion on matters of faith in Christ, said, do you really think we're going to hell? And I said, well, the Bible says that if you don't believe in Jesus, you can't go to heaven. He goes, really? Well, if I go to hell, at least I'll be in good company. And then you know, everybody kind of chuckled. Several years after that statement, my uncle died. And I had really hoped and prayed that he had put his faith in Christ and received his grace. And it was really interesting at the funeral. They had a guy playing the bagpipes. And they're playing a song. What song are they playing? Amazing Grace. You know, everybody knows the song, but not everybody knows the Savior. If you do not know the Savior, listen to these words. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it doesn't have to be that way. Look at this. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To those who are come, have come to a place where they are personally receiving they are saved. The word really means rescued. Out of some great danger, you are actually rescued from this perilous situation. 
You're trusting Christ. He's the lifeboat. His resurrection is your life. You're trusting in Him. And salvation says that you were once helpless. There's nothing you could do. But you put your trust and faith in Christ. And notice what he says. It is the power of God. Do you see that? It is literally has the inherent ability to accomplish something great in your life. You go from death to life, from being in your sin to being forgiven. You see, it is the power to bring about salvation from sin. When Christ comes from the grave and offers the world salvation in his name, it's a real offer. It actually happens that when you believe in him, your sins are forgiven because Christ has already paid for them. And the beauty of it is this. You and I, we know we're sinners. I mean, think of it. Think of just your attitudes and your actions. Just even how you treat God. Or maybe when you use his name, it's like to kind of use it in a, in a swearing way, right? If you have any mystery whether you're a sinner, we're all sinners, just ask the people you live with. Like, the guy at the church said that we're all sinners. You think that's true of me? And they're going to help you. Like, absolutely. Yeah. Hello? Did you just come to that realization? Friends, we're all sinners. We're, we're all cut out of the same bolt of cloth. We're all related to Adam. That's why we all need a Savior. And God has provided one. Someone who will rescue us from sin. And he does so because he loves us. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He wants you to know his love. He wants you to experience his joy. You and I were made to know him, to enjoy him, to love him. And God's made that possible through Jesus Christ. You can know this with certainty, that when you die, to be absent from the body is to be at present with the Lord. Why? Because Jesus has risen from the grave. Death is swallowed up in his victory. God doesn't want you to perish that's why he sent his son. And it was a costly sin. Think of it. The eternal son of God somehow entering into humanity, being forced into this puny little body of humanity and dying on a cross for us. Yet he rises again. So we will know the power of God, power of salvation, but also the power of God for life. God wants you not just to have forgiveness. He wants to change you from the inside out. He wants you to experience life as it was intended, life as he's designed it. He doesn't want you to just go through this life, just like from one problem to another, where you're just always just barely surviving. He wants you to thrive. He wants you to be everything he's intended in your relationships, in your parenting, in your work. He wants you to know purpose, joy, meaning, significance, and all of that is found in Christ and Christ alone. It's the word of the cross, and it is power. And God offers us to us. I mean, think about it. Even in our temptations, all you have to do is think of Jesus, and he gives you strength. It says in Romans 8.28, it says this, that, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. He works even the most difficult for our good, that we become like Christ. Our illnesses, they're never so final. Our grief is not beyond something that we can actually endure. God gives comfort, he gives courage, and you know how he does it? He does it through the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, Paul said this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me.
So what will it be for you? Years ago, there was a, a lady that I'd met. Uh, she had apparently taken a little journey on the wild side of life. Uh, she had placed her faith uh, in Christ earlier in her life, but she had gone far from him, and she had been recommitted and rededicated her life. She found herself married to this guy who was a contractor and was far from God, and so she's trying to talk to him about her kind of new discovered faith and how meaningful this is, and and he started listening, and, and so she asked if I would come over and talk to her husband. She said, I, I think he'd be interested in talking about these things. I'm like, okay, sure, I'm, I'll try something. So I go and I meet this guy. And I'm, as I'm getting to know him, and I'm explaining the word of the cross, explaining about Jesus, and he's listening, and he's just, we're sitting at this kitchen table, and then he just puts his hand up like this. I'm like, oh, I guess we're done, huh? You know, <laughs> Maybe this isn't going so well. And then with his wife sitting there and me puts his hand down and he said, a year ago, I got down on my hands and knees and I asked God to show me the way. And that night, he placed his faith in Jesus and his resurrection. He believed the word of the cross. And I just want to ask you, where are you? If you're here today and you've never put your trust and faith in Christ, what keeps you from doing that now? Did you know that your response to the word of the cross has eternal implications? It's the eternal divide. Which way are you going to go? The word of the cross, for some folks, is foolishness and they perish. But for others, it is the power of God for salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. On July 28, 1945, Lieutenant Colonel William Smith was flying his B-25, kind of making just a routine trip from uh, uh, Bedford, excuse me, Massachusetts, to Newark, New Jersey. Now, Lieutenant Colonel Smith was a decorated war veteran from World War II. He had flown two years worth of combat missions. And he felt very comfortable with his plane. And so he's just making kind of this routine trip. But as he's flying, he's getting closer to Manhattan. The ra- over the radio, there comes this warning from the Newark airport. And they said, listen, the fog is so dense in Manhattan and over Long Island that we're diverting you to LaGuardia. There's, you're not going to even be able to see the building, so we're sending you over there. But uh, Lieutenant Colonel Smith is like, nah, you know, I think I've got this. I'm just going to keep going. They get back on, and they're saying, no, we absolutely insist. There's no way that you could actually see the building, and it's likely you, you could even run into the Empire State Building because of the dense fog. And Smith said, thank you, blithely, clicked them off. And then his plane, he dips down below the fog, and then he must have been horrified by what he saw, for he was literally flying between the buildings in Manhattan. He had already dropped his landing gear, and he couldn't really actually get the plane to lift back up. And he goes smashed into the Empire State Building on the 79th floor. Smith and his crew, all of them die. Eleven people in the Empire State Building perish. There are 25 others that are injured in the Empire State Building, including one woman who was in the elevator at the 76th floor, and part of the plane severs the cable, and she has this sheer drop to the bottom. And somehow, she miraculously survives. And people have wondered, well, maybe if Smith had not 
dropped his landing gear, uh, maybe he would have been able to get past the building. We'll never know. But we do know this. He didn't heed the warnings because he didn't believe the message. And he perished. So the question I'd like to ask you is, where are you? Do you believe the warnings? Do you believe the message of the word of the cross? For it says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. If you will today believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. How do we know that? Because Christ the Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Believe. Let's pray. Lord, how powerful is your word. You have declared for humanity that there is life, there is forgiveness in Jesus, the resurrected one. And for someone who has come here today who has never truly trusted in Jesus, maybe they know about these things, but have never believed, would they do that right now and just pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from myself and my sin. And this morning, this Easter morning, I believe in Jesus. The payment for my sins on the cross, the resurrected one who gives me real spiritual life in you. And Lord, for all of us, would you fill us with a joy in the Savior? May we see that there is nothing that is too difficult for you, that you never see us in our sin, but always in the Son. Fill us with a life of worship for your glory. We celebrate you in Jesus' name. Amen.